Hello everyone to another Room with a Review podcast uh, in what is a very unique time in the world. So I'm still going to push on with these episodes. Uh, I don't think there's anything that would necessarily need to stop me anyway, uh, barring, you know, a change of events drastically changing my situation. So... Yeah, there's been a lot of people that are kind of optimistic about if if we, you know, the, the text they can consume and maybe um, that's part of what I'll be able to help people figure out. Don't know. Uh, I will say at the start, please leave reviews on places that you can. I know Apple Podcasts has that or whatever they call it now, iTunes, whatever, whatever it's, they changed it from one to the other. I don't know if podcasts are still, I think it went back to iTunes or vice versa. I think it's a podcast. But anyway, uh, leave reviews, places like that if you can, because that will definitely help me out. If you've listened to episodes and enjoyed it so far, that's great. Uh, please let me know if you haven't enjoyed it. Also, that would be good to hear. Uh, so I know if I'm meeting the right audience or who or how I could meet some audiences better. But that's enough of that. Let's get into this episode's text or feature text, and it's the first Shakespearean one that I've gone with, and that one is Othello, as you would notice from the title. I love Othello, and I need to give a bit of a history of my experience with Othello here. So, Othello is my favourite Shakespeare play, for many reasons. One, I think it's the most unique and diverse from the others at least in terms of the the kind of big six or seven that most people have a general understanding of so if we take kind of the ones like Romeo and Juliet, Taming of the Shrew, Macbeth, Othello, King Lear, what have I missed? Maybe Richard III or The Tempest, some of those classic HSC texts I feel like I've missed one. Anyway, yeah, maybe Midsummer Night's Dream, things like that, or uh, Merchant of Venice. There's there's kind of several that are the more prominent. Like we're not talking about Cymbeline or uh, A Winter's Tale or anything like that. Even All's Well That Ends Well As You Like It. They're well known, but not as well known. Uh, so these these ones, these big, as I said, six or seven of his. Othello is definitely my favourite. It's the one that I always try to teach. It's, it's definitely the one I like teaching the most. But it goes back further than that. So when I was when I was in high school myself and we had to do some Shakespeare texts, I was never really a fan of Romeo and Juliet. I find that a bit... I think because it's been done so many times in so many ways, we're all really familiar with the story and it's also not really that complex. Like, there's not that much going on in it. Whereas... Othello, there's a, there's a lot more interesting kind of subplots happening and uh, machinations. So that's one of the reasons why I like it. But also, Othello was the first text, first Shakespeare text that we studied and I genuinely enjoyed. Macbeth was fine, but it just didn't stick with me as much. It was a bit... It was fine, but it wasn't as complex as I'd hoped. There's a large chunk of Macbeth where not much really happens, actually. 
where that kind of fourth act, third act even, after he's become king, which happens relatively early on, three and four, eh. And I feel like the sons of Duncan kind of get pushed to the side a little bit. So Macbeth is a little bit meh. But in terms of manipulation and deceit and kind of the Machiavellian nature of things, Macbeth is is really good. It's, it's a great text in terms of those things. So I do like Macbeth's kind of representation of power. And I think it's been a good comparison to many different texts. Obviously, Game of Thrones was a big one for a little while. Uh, but I think Breaking Bad as well, the character of Heisenberg that Brian Cranston played, I think he's a really good comparison to Macbeth because you start to see how obviously there's different motivations in Macbeth it's about him becoming king and his wife encouraging him to do it in Breaking Bad it's more about him trying to look after his family so it's very different motivations originally but you start to see in both texts as they enter that death spiral and it's all going to come crashing down there's very similar traits and characteristics or even actions at times. And I think that's where there's a good comparison to be made between the character of Macbeth and Heisenberg from Breaking Bad, Walter White. So Macbeth at least holds... And, I mean, several years ago when I taught it, Breaking Bad was kind of at the peak of its fame. It was just coming off the peak of its fame. It was before Battle Call Saul had come out. So everyone was really... Like it was still quite fresh for everyone. Game of Thrones was earlier seasons. It hadn't hit its full levels of popularity. It did a year or two after that. So there was a good window where Macbeth fit between the two texts when you were teaching. You could, if you had year 10 students that may have seen some of those TV shows, it was really, really good to be able to talk to them about it. They understood it. They got it. But I think it's also a really good text uh, to teach to all students, and it's typically done around year 10 when everyone's about 15, 16. Because of who I think is one of Shakespeare's best female characters, Lady Macbeth, she is infinitely more complex than anyone in Romeo and Juliet, I would argue. And that makes her fascinating on her own. She's not a victim as well, which is one of the big criticisms of Shakespeare, that he has a lot of disempowered females if you look at you know Othello the ones I'm going to get to even that's kind of frustrating that there's two females that are slightly empowered but not even it's really they're very much male oriented plays there are some other plays that are very good uh Taming of the Shrew but even that it's problematic in the sense that Catherine still learned like it's about taming her uh, to an extent, and it's not necessarily controlling her, but it kind of is a bit frustrating that we see someone who, a female character who is speaking their mind, is independent, and by modern standards is what we encourage for most females, being told and learning not to be like that. It's it's still really frustrating. I think there are some other plays that do a good job with females. Uh, Tidiana from... Midsummer Night's Dream is a good one. Some people would argue for Portia from Merchant of Venice. I think you could... Oh, what's her name from Twelfth Night? Um, 
is it Olivia? I think so. Or Viola. Viola. Uh, yeah, she's a, she's a pretty good one too. So there's a couple there, but I think Lady Macbeth is one of the best. Uh, so we did that in year 10, but it was, it was okay. Like I didn't thoroughly enjoy it at the time. Then in year 11, we did Othello and I loved it. It was so good. We had, like you got to see Iago manipulating everyone and how he controls events and just is at the center of it all. And the big comparison for him, and actually it was around that time too. So it was a really good thing and it stuck with us, everyone around my age that studied at that time and not the next few years afterwards. But he's very much, there's a one way in which a lot of students understand the character of Iago, which I'll get to soon, uh, which is the character of Heath Ledger's Joker, where there's no real motive for why he wants to do these things, why he wants to do it. And the closest we get is what uh, Michael Caine's character, Alfred, says, is some men just want to watch the world burn, which is one way of understanding Iago. Uh, and so when that movie came out... Oh, maybe I'm not, I must have studied Othello before it. But anyway... Uh, yeah, ever since that movie did come out, though, it's been a really good connection between... Uh, the the play and that character, for many students, the modern day Iago is that Joker character and it's become such a widely known film and character that there's a very easy way in for a lot of students because they, they go, oh, I don't understand why Iago is doing this and you just point to that and they go, oh, I get it now. And it's very straightforward for them. So that's that's been a very quick way to get into that. But yeah, we so we, we were studying it and there was so much going on that I thought was so much fun because you've got the whole Iago and Rodrigo relationship and Rodrigo is just this absolute fool, but he's not a fool in the classic sense. He's a bit more noble and in, like not innocent, but he's, he's definitely a, a tragic fool. Uh, and then you've also got the other kind of characters around, obviously, Othello, Desdemona, Amelia, Bianca, Brabantio, all of them. Uh, and obviously, uh, Cassius. Cassius? Wow, that's great, having a mental blank on one of the prominent characters. Uh, yeah, but Othello, second in charge, is also manipulated by Iago, and actually is a pretty minor role when you look at what he does in the play. Like, he actually isn't in the play all that much. Uh I honestly think this play is a is Iago's play. He's the main character. Othello, the play is named after him, but it's really about Iago. And so when we also... One of the other reasons I absolutely love this play is my favourite Disney movie of all time is Aladdin. I may have mentioned that when, we did, when I did the Kingdom Hearts podcast uh, last week. But... When you look at it and you kind of figure out that, oh, okay, Aladdin is obviously based on the 1001 Nights story of Aladdin, but there are definitely some aspects of Othello that have been put in. Jafar is the uh, Iago character, and Iago is that kind of nod to that. Uh, there's that racist slash discriminatory attitude towards Aladdin. You've got, and it doesn't obviously end the same way, but there are some components there that overlap quite nicely. A, I'm just reading too much into it, but we do know that, for instance, Lion King is based on Hamlet, so there... Oh, that was the other big one that I talked about that I didn't mention before. Uh, yeah, but... Yeah, the Lion King is based on Hamlet. Aladdin has some influence from Othello. It's obviously not based 
on Othello. It's obviously based on Aladdin, The One Thousand One Nights, but there are some things they've obviously tweaked. And what was the other one? There was another one they they borrowed from Shakespeare too. But anyway, so yeah, when we study Othello in high school, it was great because you know it's like, oh, okay, I understand some of these things because that's what happens in Aladdin. And I think, as I said already, like there's just so many more unique and original characters that we get that we don't see in most other plays or they're much more defined than most other plays. I would argue that this is his best work. I think it's the one where you can ask the least questions about it and also the most interesting questions about it. So what I mean by that is there are some questions we ask about Macbeth where it's just saying that, oh, why... Like, how did he actually get away with this? How did nobody realise it was him all this time? And then it's just everyone realised it's him. Uh, then you've got questions around... Obviously, these questions can be answered. Romeo and Juliet. That the ending is almost farcical. It's, it's just... It's frustrating in many ways, the fact that they didn't get their communication to each other. Uh, you've also got the questions in things like Tempest of around Caliban and Margaret Atwood did a really good job of bringing up some of those questions in Hagseed. There are questions around Polonius and the ghost in Hamlet. Can other people see the ghost? Can they not? Does the ghost instruct them? Does, you know, and there are questions that are hard to answer. Whereas I think Othello, we've got some pretty much every answer is pretty clear. The answers to everything are in the play. But we can also then ask some really, really fascinating questions. And all of them are to do with Iago, I would say, for the most part. The, the one character that I think we need to ask more questions of is... Uh, oh, I'm going to get this wrong. Bianca. Uh, where, why does she do what she does? Like, if she's serving her master, Amelia, and Amelia's loyal to Desdemona... Oh, Bianca's not serving her, sorry. Yeah, it's just that whole dynamic is very odd. The whole Bianca, Amelia, Iago, Desdemona, the three kind of central females of the play, their dynamic is very weird. So I, that's, that's the one thing to me that has the most issue. And Othello is so enraged over such small things. And obviously those seeds, like his mind has been poisoned by Iago in many ways. But nonetheless, it's still, like, it kind of holds up. You're not really questioning that someone could get that angry uh, over these things, especially if it builds up for a long time and that seed is planted very early on in the play. So, basically, yeah, Othello is my favourite. It's also the one that really made me appreciate Shakespeare for what he does. And I think it's one that, when I've taught it to students, maybe not the same level as myself, but they don't have to get to that point. They they tend to really appreciate the complexity of it all. They really appreciate how you can discuss racism with the play, but the play's not about racism. Uh, you can discuss, obviously, things about gender, anger, and some of them relate to Othello, some of them relate to Iago, some of them relate to various different characters, really. And, and I think that's one of the best features of it is that you've got these different characters. As I said, you're just really lacking that uh, empowered female in many ways. 
But let's get to those characters now. So, oh, sorry, I'll finish what I was saying. But yeah, it, it really built up my love for Shakespeare. I wouldn't say love necessarily, but it made me at least appreciate a lot of his other works more than I think I otherwise would have. And it definitely allowed a really good point to showcase the Shakespeare's style and what he's really good at. I think I think all those things that we need to refer to when we talk about Shakespeare, whether it's the contrast of characters and some of the symbols and the, and the settings and like those background kind of tensions that are going on. But it's also removed enough from his context that we don't have to get in depth on his context like we do for some of his other plays. And that's something I appreciate too because it's nice to look at a Shakespeare text that is independent of events going on at the time to a large degree. There's obviously some influence from the context itself, but it's not like one of the history plays or Richard III and things like that where it's virtually propaganda and Macbeth to a similar degree as well. So from Othello, it obviously then spawned me on to at least be willing to read other Shakespeare plays, but it was the first one that we studied that I really, really enjoyed and understood at a deeper level. So enough about my history with the play and some of the things I've talked about now. Uh, I've mentioned some of the things that we'll mention later, so I'll just get on with it and stop rambling. I think this play is so good because, as I said already, this play is about Iago, and when I teach the play, that's who I centre the study on, and we branch out from there. Typically, most students will revolt, like gravitate towards him, or they'll side with Othello, Desdemona, and they'll hate Iago because he's just essentially doing all these things for no particular reason. And that's always a good couple of lessons worth of activities where you have students investigate the different motivations that are ascribed to Iago, whether he's racist, whether he felt he was slighted for not getting a promotion, whether he believed he should be the second in charge or the commander, whether uh, he felt that Othello had slept with his own wife, uh, Amelia, and that's why he takes his revenge out on her too. You know, there's many different reasons given. I also like to throw in another component, and there's a little bit of evidence for this, but it's not superbly strong. I don't feel some people argue a lot more than others. I like the theory because it's fun, but I don't think there's a lot that it rests on. Uh, And that theory is that Iago is the devil. And at one point in the play, he is called Diablo, or, or he refers to himself as Diablo. He calls himself the devil, I believe, in one of his last, one of the last things he says in Act 5. Uh, he basically says that he can't be killed. There are a few references throughout that the spirit of Iago lives on in other ways. And I think that's a really fun thing to get students to go kind of through the, the play and pick out those bits of evidence and argue the case for whether or not he is the devil or not. That's really fun. As I said, you can, and better students especially, really engage in that because they start to see that this play is much more than just a man getting revenge. It's just someone deliberately causing mischief in a very, and that's where you can get into the context a little bit of the perceptions of the devil. Uh, And then it's really good to show them the Rolling Stone song, Sympathy for the Devil, and how he just creates mischief because that's what the devil does. 
Uh, and you can give them, there's so much work you can do on turning Othello into the play, into a study of how the devil has been represented over years. You've got that famous quote, the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he didn't exist. And I think all those things together is really, really fun way for students to explore that character. And I think that's why I love this play so much because it's very much a great way to study characterization. All the things that are built up from act one, you see how Brabantio is easily incensed. You see Iago's manipulations early on, Rodrigo as a fool, and that classic symbol, that, that role of the play that Shakespeare uses in almost all these plays as that fool that's always present. Uh, you've got the... I wouldn't say he's a tragic hero of Othello. You've got the... She's not disempowered, but she's not empowered. Character of Desdemona. She's a bit odd in that she's so blindly loyal and obedient to Othello. And it's good because you can see why she falls into the trap and you can see how the trap works. And it's one of those great experiences where that the... It's not the fourth wall being broken, but the dramatic irony of the play where us as an audience, we see exactly how these nets are being cast by Iago and we see exactly how it's all going to play out from about the middle of the play. And then from the middle, act three onwards, we just see uh, Rodrigo fall and we see Othello get caught up, obviously, by the end with Desdemona. And we see how even Brabantio kind of gets punished a little bit by Iago. Like, I mean, everybody suffers. Uh, and Amelia suffers because obviously, you know, not only would she have suffered when she figured out who um, Iago is and what he's doing, but Bianca is punished for her sins in many ways. Uh, and Cassio is punished for his, or not for his sins, but he kind of redeemed. And he's the one that doesn't really commit any sins. He's the pure, honest guy. And so it's, I think when you look at how Iago affects all of these people's lives, again, you look at all of them being punished for their sins. It just, it adds more of that. It's a good way to also expand on that Iago as the devil theory, that he's punishing them for their sins at this point. So the question then is, do they actually have sins before Iago comes along? Or does he create their sin and then he punishes them for those so they're tempted by the devil and it's very good as a uh allegory for some of these christian views but then desdemona who doesn't really commit any of these things she stays honest and loyal she stays pure she doesn't commit any of these faults she does die but she never gets tormented in the way that othello does yes she doesn't quite understand why he's acting that way and that's part of her torture but we definitely feel sympathy for her more than anyone else. Whereas Othello, we don't feel a lot of sympathy for him because he doesn't treat others around him all that well. Uh, he trusts Iago and we he's in many ways a fool there too that we don't feel sympathy for him. So I think there's, there's some really good extra things that you can do with this play aside from just study the, which you shouldn't do anyway, but the, the basic plot and general concepts that are being... Uh, brought out from the play the themes of loyalty and uh, ambition potentially you could argue and I think you've got really good contrast between those three characters of Cassio, Iago and Othello and even Rodrigo to a lesser extent uh, as I said you've got these classic Shakespearean roles we don't have to the same degree the kind of king 
that we get, or the Lord in many cases, that's really a fellow more than anything. Uh, we don't have, as I said, the the female characters are maybe lacking a little bit, but yeah, we we really do get a good exploration of the characters more than anything and how those characters match some of the, like the deception and appearance versus reality, all those sort of things, those classic Othello concepts. I think you can study them through the characters rather than through the plot, which is a lot easier for students too. And I think maybe this is one of the reasons I liked it. Because when you're studying it through the character, you can find a lot of evidence for all of these things because the characters talk about them directly. So I think in terms of this play, I I know some people, they're not, they'd rather teach Macbeth or they'd rather teach one of the other plays I mentioned much earlier. But that's kind of my case for it. And I think what also gives it a really good, what actually makes the play even stronger is the fact that there isn't a great adaptation that's really widely used. Macbeth has got a couple, whether they're good or not. I haven't seen the Michael Fassbender one I really want to. Uh, the Hamlet obviously has Lion King, which makes it really easy for students to kind of get the gist. Taming the Shrew has 10 Things Ahead About You, which is maybe the greatest Shakespeare adaptation of all time. Please, please argue that with me because I'd love to hear other good ones because there's no losing that argument. I'm either going to be wrong and I find out better ones or I'm going to be right and I'm right, which is fun. Uh, but yeah, Othello is kind of lacking one. I don't think there's a great adaptation of Othello so far. When we look at... And I probably just missed one there anyway. That's probably a good one that I've kind of overlooked. But I do think Othello is, is lacking one. But I think, as if anything, it makes the play better because we really start to appreciate how good it was and how hard it is to replicate it. And that, that gives it so much textual integrity. So I think when we do talk about a lot of these concepts, we really need to talk about contrast, symbolism, particularly in terms of the roles. And Rodriguez is a really good way to look at fools. But yeah, the characterization especially, as I said already, the contrast. I think those are the main things that most people should focus on. And it's a good text to do essay writing. We do an empathy task. Uh, where the characters or the, the students have to speak as one of the characters. Uh, I know a few schools that do that. But that was, I mean, we started doing that years and years ago. And then with the way the HC went, Module C, one of the guesses that people said was you might have to be able to write as a character from a text you've read or from the perspective of an individual in a text. And so we were prepping our students from that for years ago. So we felt really kind of ahead of the curve there. But I know that we're not the only one, so I'm not going to go on about it too much more. Just a nice little humble brag that's not so humble but I think those are the good ways to explore the play I think you can also do more with contrast between the characters you could do it as a if you found a good text that overlaps in some ways I wouldn't do Dark Knight but you could find another thing that has those not textual conversations but overlapping ideas depending on where you're going with your 11 and 12 uh, if you're doing Tempest and Hags and you wanted to find an adaptation well you could oh is not great but there are others out there at the same time, you could do it more thematically. They definitely exist. It's just a matter of whether or not you want to go looking for ones and can find a good one. I've seen better play performances. I've seen a couple more than the film versions. And I know there's a, a recent-ish book that came out. I think it was just called Boy, was it? And that was an adaptation of it. 
Uh, it was about a boy who was in school and was maybe bullied racially. Can't remember exactly. I haven't read it. Not super familiar with it. But I think there was one that came out. So maybe that is one adaptation. But that would be a lot of reading to do. Uh, you'd kind of have to have a class that was up for that slash structure it really well because it's a hard slog to get through Tempest Hagseed, but at least there you've got more time to come back to it if you need to. You can kind of structure your time pretty well there if you kind of get through your other texts, depending on how you go with those. And given that there's only four modules, but one of them is a little bit shorter than the others, you've got a lot of like some time to come back to those things. Whereas I don't know how long you could spend on doing a play and a novel in even, well, you're 11, 12, etc., etc., uh, 10, 11, sorry, not 12. Uh, but that's that's kind of where I'll leave it. I think I've talked about the text enough a little bit. I do think... Oh, actually, no, I'll talk about the racism in the play before I forget anything. I definitely think it's a play where you can address racism because it's definitely there. You see it mainly in Brabantia in the first little bit, but later on, you don't really see that much racism towards Othello. There are a couple of things that are said here and there, but no one's really that racist to him once they get, once they leave uh, the, the city. At the beginning, so once they land upon Cyprus, they're kind of removed from that context in many ways. Uh, there are some good discussions of what, the island of Cyprus represents as like a separation from the rest of the world sort of thing where these events can happen uh, entering, entering that other world and hence why Iago becomes even more powerful there sort of thing. But the early part of the play definitely introduces the idea of racism and yet we'd never actually really see Iago be racist. And so it's a hard one to, to discuss, but you definitely... Like, he's, he's racist in the sense that he's trying to inflame Brabantio, but he's not really that racist beyond that point. I don't feel. So, I think you could definitely have a conversation around racism with this play, but you also, though, need to bear in mind that it's not necessarily the most accurate or strongest aspect of the play. So I think those are some good ways to look at it. I, as I said, I, I always focus on the character of Iago with students that are up there for it. I push them down the whole, let's look at him as a devil representation. Um, we kind of go back to the play and they pick it out, kind of building a case for it, which is really fun. I've done activities where you put Iago on trial and you have to have a really good student that understands the character really well. Otherwise, I might do it sometimes. But where you kind of get defense for him, prosecution, and you have witnesses, so you get students playing the different characters, which is really good. So you can kind of work on teams to get them to build up sense of character. And it's, in many ways, uh, if you've ever been part of mock trial or things like that, it's very much a rendition of that. But the students get to kind of write their cases and notes themselves. And I just present them with the charges. So we've got a defendant, we've got witnesses. So there's not really many that are on Iago's side as witnesses. You let the students choose if they want to have Rodrigo as a witness for or against Iago. Uh, same as Amelia, if she's going to have for or against Iago. But it's a good, fun activity that students do, and you can spend quite a few lessons on that. They still have to build up evidence from the play. Um, 
as I said already, you can do empathy tasks, you can do essay tasks, you can do comparative tasks, adaptation. Like I always like seeing how they create adaptations for this because as I've said, they don't have great ones. Those are some really good ways to use Othello. And, but it's also really good, as I said, for building up that level of analysis where you can go students that are still at kind of a very basic or sound level of analysis. They can just analyze what the characters say and do, which is very basic push them into more what are their motivations and how these characters contrasting and the the contrast between characters and themselves, so Iago and himself. But then the further, deeper representations of some of these things and what these characters embody, I think you've got these different levels of analysis you can push students through and it'll really allow for you to engage students at all levels. So that's it for Othello, the first of the Shakespeare plays texts that I've discussed. I'll consider doing another one because there's so much on these that I'm by no means an expert on them, but I do think it's fun to talk about them and what people do with them and how you teach them. I think it'll definitely be a while before I pick another one. I need to think that through as to what I would pick if I did another one, but I'll be back in a moment with the ad of the week. ad of the week this week is a Toyota ad and funnily enough it was an ad that I've seen a few times it's been around for a little while I can't remember if it was a very specific car like specific type of Toyota or not I just remember it was for Toyota and I picked this ad because I saw it again the last couple days as I said it's been around for a little while so it's not a new ad but it's an ad that kind of made me smile. And every time I see it, I definitely relate to the central kind of character of it. Where basically there's a big kind of function of some kind, a lot of formal wear. And it, I think it's connected to a Bluetooth speaker and you just hear the song uh, Call Me Maybe by Carly Rae Jepsen playing. And everyone kind of looks around and you see this, this one man stand alone. Everyone's kind of walks back away from him and he starts awkwardly dancing and I find that quite endearing it's something that I think I would do too where it may be an embarrassing song but you just got to own it and I think that's a really just a fun ad as I said it's something I feel like I relate to where I would do that it's something that could easily happen to me uh, I listen to all sorts of music and I mean all sorts so I don't really feel embarrassed by that stuff and sometimes it's fun to just be goofy and enjoy the cheesiness of some of these pop songs that are really not great musically, but just are fun to just bop around to. Oh, goodness, I used the word bop. Uh, but I think this ad, it's, it's... As I said, I don't remember if it was for a specific type of Toyota. It may not have been. But I do know it was a Toyota ad. And I like the effectiveness of this ad in the sense that it's more about brand image than it is about a particular product. If you're a big company like Toyota or any of these other car companies, you don't necessarily need to advertise a specific model unless it's a new release or for some reason you have a specific target audience in mind. This one, there was no specific target audience from what I saw. It just popped up. I can't remember what, it, what came on when I was watching, so it wasn't necessarily... Like, it clearly wasn't, I don't think designed to pick a certain group demographic 
And I think that's why it was a generic ad. It was probably Corolla, but I can't remember. But as someone who also used to drive a Toyota, and I know uh, they're quite a reliable car, a really good car. I, I do enjoy the Toyota. I did enjoy driving it. It was very good fuel-wise. Like, it's very economic. Very little repairs needed. Great little car. It's It made me think that this ad, it was... Okay, so it doesn't actually need to advertise the products to me anyway. It's more about building up its brand and its image, which I think is a really interesting way that we're seeing a lot of advertisers these days. They're making use of different formats. So we've got the YouTube ads that are sometimes 5, 15, 30, even a minute long ads. And those five second ones, you don't have much time. And so sometimes just get your name of your product out there or get your brand name out there. Other companies, they do a really, really good job of not advertising themselves and yet they still promote themselves with an image more than anything. And I think that's where... And it's exactly where the, the really like high fashion kind of companies do it. If they that The fact that they don't need to advertise makes them prestigious. So if you're, for instance, if you're going to a lot of these really, really high-end type shops, so Jimmy Choo, for instance, and a few other ones like that, if you go in there, they don't have price tags or anything. You never see an ad for these companies, and yet they are still very, very wealthy companies. If you go into a store at any point, they don't have price tags because basically the idea is that if you have to ask how much it is, or you don't roughly know how much you're going to be spending, you shouldn't be in there in the first place. You can either afford it and you're not worried about it, or you can't, and so you don't go in there. And I think ads like that, and this Toyota one is obviously not at that end, but it's more about maintaining an image of itself and kind of keeping a positive image and it, I mean it worked on me hence why I picked it but this Toyota ad it's, it's like hey here's a little fun thing that a lot of us would probably do or we'd feel awkward we can relate to this guy very quick empathy with him and now we've, they've got a foot in the door and we start to go oh Toyota's a pretty good company actually it doesn't have really much bad press either it's like there's not many people that are uh, it's not Volkswagen, for instance, where they had the big diesel scandal several years ago. It's not Holden or Ford, where it's got a branding issue, I would argue. Uh, it's got the reliability factor, but not to the same extent of Volvo, where it's almost a joke. Not that Volvo's a joke, but you know what I mean? Uh, and it's also not got other stigmas that, for instance, BMW or Audi have. So I think Toyota's in a really good spot and ads like this just enhance that a little bit. They've put themselves there. They said, look, we're a reliable car company. You know us. Let's just get you feeling good about us. And that's all it took. And it's little things like that where they don't have to push a product on you, but just plant that seed and you've got a positive image of Toyota. You're driving around looking for cars and you go to the dealerships or you see them on the road. Okay. All right. Yep. That's, and you've got that positive perception and it obviously would work because you get people that would go there and say, yep, I like this company, I like their products, I will buy it. And it would be the deciding factor between that and maybe Hyundai or something else. So that's the ad of the week. Uh, if you've seen it, great. I don't even know how you'd find it. If you tried to find it, probably just Google Toyota, call me maybe ad, and that should come up. Not, not Google, YouTube, I should say, but it's the same thing these days. Yeah, and I'll be back in just a moment with War and Peace. The War and Peace update this week is going to be very short. I'm going to try to keep it to under 90 seconds, although I'm 10 seconds in. 
Not going to lie, this is the first week where I really haven't read it much. Uh, it's been maybe four days since I last picked it up, and each of those days I was only reading one chapter, so I'm definitely not behind overall, but behind for the week. I'll have to come back to it. But this is where those reading challenges are important. You've got to build up those habits. Some of the chapters aren't long. I just haven't bothered to sit down and read them. So I'll be getting to those. And you might go, why bother with a War and Peace update when you have nothing to update? Well, I think it's still good to to prove that why those habits were important in the first place and why I've got to read a chapter a day. Because when I don't do it, this is what happens. And when things do get busy, it's easy to go, that's something that I'll just not do. It doesn't take long. It's only a couple minutes. I probably should have done it. It wouldn't have taken me that long. But I didn't do it. Now I need to. So that's what I'm saying. Encourage you all to set up your reading habits, get them going, and don't shirk them. Just because you think, oh, I've, you know, I'm too tired, I don't want to do it. Sometimes, yeah, maybe that is the case. You are too tired, you can't focus on it. But get in those habits, read it. It won't, it doesn't have to be much. Just those five to ten minutes that you've got, I could have done that. And I should have done that. And I didn't. Now I regret it. So I have to read extra. That's it from me. Thanks, everyone. Uh, stay safe. Wash your hands. And let's hope that very soon we get through all of this. We figure out how to deal with it better and hopefully it doesn't affect too many people in more ways than it already has but yes please follow the advice of the experts don't believe everything you see about it please check the sources and the actual evidence for it who's telling you these things because there are a lot of people telling poor information and sharing that when they shouldn't there are also people that are panicking over to extreme levels where they don't need to. So please, everyone, just stay safe. Follow the advice we're given by the experts. If that advice starts to conflict with each other, then just be patient, wait and see. In terms of hoarding, look, I know this podcast doesn't have a big reach, but if you know anyone that is hoarding or you're hoarding yourself, please stop. If you've bought up months and months of supplies, use some of it. Let the market kind of reset. Uh, And if you're one of the people that's buying stuff, and you've got enough stores too, and you buy it because you go, oh, I don't know when I'll, I'll be able to get it next. Just be patient. Give it that extra week. Other people, yes, will buy it. But if we all together just relax a little bit with our purchases, we will be okay. There will be enough food. Like a quarantine is not a death sentence. As long as you've got enough food for about three weeks worth. So if you went, you know, once a week, go and buy your stuff or every couple of days, maybe you might buy a few more things. But just keep enough for yourself for about two to three weeks worth. If you have to be self-quarantined, it's going to be two weeks. You can go back out and get more food after that. If you're quarantined for those two weeks, just make sure you get enough food for those times. That's all it takes. It's not, you're not going to all of a sudden need to eat a lot more food if you're quarantined. You're not going to need to use more things if you're quarantined. Please, everyone, just stay calm with this. There is enough to go around if we actually look after each other and aren't being selfish or stupid about it. So by all means, if you know anyone that is uh, hoarding, Please encourage them not to. If you, as I said, are buying things out of panic because you don't know when you'll get them next, please try to limit that as much as possible. I know there are some things you obviously need. Some people can't, like obviously we all need toilet paper, but you you might need certain food items. If you've got kids and you might need a little bit more than other people, that's fine. But just don't go crazy about it. Uh, it's okay, as I said, to have a couple of weeks worth, but nobody needs more than what they've what they're going to use in about a month or two, a month at the most. You shouldn't need to stock food for more than about a month. If you've got enough to get you through, as I said, three weeks, just don't keep buying more. Start using that stuff. And then over the next couple of weeks, 
pick up bits and pieces as you need them and just maintain that kind of three-week preparedness. If you're more than three weeks beyond what you need for most food things, you're part of the problem. You're making it harder for everyone else. So just keep that in mind. And please, as I said, just wash your hands. Be safe, be sensible. Doesn't need to be much more than that. Thank you.